Hey everyone, I'm Chris, and welcome back to season three of the Superpowers Podcast Show. Have you ever asked yourself, what is your superpower? Everyone has a superpower, but most people just don't know what it is. And that's why we're here to uncover it. This podcast will not only share what our guests' unique superpowers are, but also how it helped them both professionally and personally. Superpowers, what's yours? Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Superpowers Podcast. We are on season three. We have another incredible guest today. Full disclosure, Taris is the founder and Taris Kart Krovchek. Yes. Isn't it amazing well, that I invested in your company and still struggle with that? That's highly embarrassing. Tar- that's fine. I don't think you need to know my last name. <laughs> Taris is, uh, full disclosure, Taris is a C2V portfolio company from Fund One. Uh, so I just feel like that's important to call out. Taurus, we are so happy to have you on the show after some some scheduling challenges, but we're here. And welcome to the Superpowers podcast. Let's start with where, are you, where are you dialing in from today? Uh, the rainy Brooklyn Navy Yard. I think you can see. Oh, yeah. Backdrop. Pretty, look at our, that. That's, that's yeah. not a virtual image, huh? No, no. It's, that's the actual background. It's a little uh, gray than it usually is, but you know, we started in a, in a basement garage. A couple of years ago, and uh, every year, move you keep up. moving up. Let's hope so from our from a C two V and investor perspective. But that's not why we're on the show today. So, Taurus, tell us a little bit about where you're um, from and where you grew up. How about painting a picture of Mini Taurus before he uh, has assembled one of the most exciting and beautiful EV motorcycles on the road? Oh, thanks, man. That was not really my initial sort of drive or intention as a kid. But I, I think I always knew I wanted to do something in the physical auto space. And uh, I think like many other kids had a bunch of posters of sports cars on the walls, you know, specifically a Lamborghini Cool Touch from the 80s. So there's something about that, just, you know, the, the rawness and the power of it. But I grew up in Sweden in Stockholm, heavily influenced sort of by the thinking around sustainability, although at that point, the concept of sustainability wasn't really, you know, part something that people were talking about. But a lot of sort of Scandinavian aesthetics, nature, but also uh, technology. And there was this sort of brewing kind of sense that, oh, something is happening. And this is uh, late 90s, you know, 2000s. And I got interested in, in web early on and then started doing 3D animation, uh, modeling. And uh, I kind of tried to map out the entire landscape of what is technology made of? What are the bits and pieces, everything from software development to UI, UX, front end, back end? I mean, you name it. At that point, people were still trying to figure out different dis- disciplines of it. I was born in Finland. H- how does one see the world there? And when well, you mentioned design, and for those that have been to Norway or, or Sweden, there's certainly a kind of a cleanness and aesthetics. There are some incredible brands that have come out of there help me, but Ikea and Volvo and obviously Spotify. But what does growing up with a Swedish background sort of offer one from an entrepreneurial journey and maybe how they kind of approach the world and how they may build something outside of not being an American? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Something that I've spent a fair amount of time also trying to identify because my parents are Russian. So I grew up in a, in a Russian household, but in Sweden, which are very 
two different cultures. So at All right, home, this is the point you know, where I wish I had that little button to the soundtrack that, oh, not the soundtrack, but that like, hold on, Russian parents. Yes. Okay. But in the, in the Swedish environment. And that explains why I struggled with your last name. No one can pronounce or sound out a Russian last name. Where in Russia and how did they end up in Sweden? They met in Moscow and my dad was a diplomat. So he traveled basically all over the place and then they sent him to Sweden and then the Soviet Union collapsed in 91. And he said, mm, maybe that's not the best environment to raise two children. So they decided to stay in Sweden and then that's where he, his entrepreneurial journey became. So he uh, uh, left sort of the governmental politics and started starting his company. So I grew up in an environment of, uh, you know, my dad starting a company, failing, starting, failing, which I think laid the foundation of, oh, wait, you can go out and do whatever you want to do. You don't have to work for a company. And uh, also you start to develop this thing that failing is not end of the world. It's just a process. It's a way of getting there, you know? And I think uh, the downside of the Swedish culture is fear of failing is mediocrity which is everything is like the level of standard is really high but few people really dare to take the risk uh, but the ones that do and the companies that really make it big like some of the companies you mentioned spotify you know skype if you mix this sort of careful approach to it but you amplify the risk maybe therein lies this thing why the success is bigger because you're having more of a rational approach to it and not this crazy moonshots ideas that you tend to see in the US that most of them fail, right? Right. I, I, I want to touch on that sort of non-fear of failure because that is a critical characteristic of being an entrepreneur. And I think a lot of people want to be an entrepreneur, but they don't undertake the responsibility of, of accepting that failure is okay. I, I was not that uh, individual through the majority of my career it was more like, I'm crushing it. We're doing great. Everything's awesome. And when I did have my periods of failure, it took me only as I got older, uh, I actually embraced it and certainly didn't relish it. But I realized as I got older, it was actually very good things that happened. And, you know, things do come for a reason. That does sound cheesy, but you do learn from them. But I, I, I do think that that is such an, a huge component of the journey. And it's interesting because in Finland, there's obviously an entrepreneurial background, but there's not as much, there's always this sort of, if you do that, it's not going to work, right? It's a very introverted sort of place. But no, I just think that's really fascinating that you, you learn that from your, from your father. I think it's whether you learn that from your culture or from your, from your environment or your parents, that is truly, it shapes your worldview. And, you know, the story that we've brought up with is, heavily leaning towards, you know, seek comfort, career, pick a job that pays you well. And we, at an early age, we, we start building this cushion around us, right? But if you have someone in your environment who's like, you know what, no, I'm going to do that. And maybe it's not going to work out, but I'm going to learn from that and try it again. It just sets you on a completely different course. And, you know, when I was 20, I'm like, well, I'm going to start my own design agency. Like what? I have no skills. I have no competence you know but then i'm like what's how bad can it be and the, the first month after we launched it was me and my co-founder we got our client and we we're able to pay ourselves salary and i remember that specific moment of having the the power to pay yourself by <laughs> your own 
choice. I'm like, why isn't everyone doing this? Why yeah. are you going to a nine to five job? Yeah. And you're giving your destiny into someone else's hand where you can do it yourself. Yes. You know? And uh, I think 99% is psychology. Yes. Now is your, and at this time with this agency, are you in Sweden? Yes, I'm in Sweden. And, and your parents are there? My parents are there. Yeah, yeah. I studied in Australia for two years just to sort of go, mo- go away from Scandinavia and kind of like get a different worldview. But then after two years, moved back. Your, is your sibling uh, more stable than you as far as uh, create creativity and not wanting to? Yes. Yeah. What, for sure. He, she, brother, sister, older, younger? She's a seven-year-older sister. And uh, she definitely also had the drive, but she was more towards working for larger corporations and just seeking uh, more stability for some reason. I don't know. Maybe it's the classical dichotomy between siblings. You know, one is a yeah. mirror reflection or the opposite reflection of the other one. Yeah, you're the Ferris Bueller and she's a sister. Taurus, during your um, your earlier part of your career, any failures that stand out, specific examples mm. uh, that kind of stand out to you where you were in a really tough spot and maybe you weren't going to come out of it and you couldn't see the forest through the trees? Anything specific yeah. on, on that journey? Um, and plenty. So after we started the, the design agency, uh, maybe a year after we decided, well, there seems to be this movement where mobile is going to be a big thing. And uh, this was a year after the iPhone launch, I believe 2007, 2008, somewhere around there. And we said, let's start a company called Design Mobile, where we take websites, redesign them into a, a mobile format. You know, revolutionary idea at, at that point in Sweden, that didn't exist. And that was sort of my first introduction to what a startup was, meaning creating something from your own. So up until then, I've been working with clients. You know, clients come and they pay you for something. But this was our things like, well, we have to build some sort of a platform. How are we funding this? Are we funding this through our agents or do we go out and raise investors? So all of that was just a new thing. And I brought in an older friend who was like, I'm going to help you guys raise capital. And we're like, great, we have no idea how to raise capital. I have no, you know, the angels, that kind of thing kind of didn't exist in Sweden back then. Or at least I didn't know how to tap into this. So we started the company, the brand, uh, built the products and then just did not pay attention to the basic framework of the business contract, the partnership agreements, you know? Right. And uh, a couple of months later, I'm sitting at the table where the investor basically says, oh, so thank you. We're going to take it from here. And uh, you have 5% <laughs> left of the company. And, you know, me and my girlfriend would look at each other and like, hold on, what are you talking about? This is our company. They're like, no, 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 no. Uh, this is our company now. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, it was a good lesson where I'm like, that can happen. You can start exactly. something and not end up owning it. So that was a crash course. And like, it's not enough just to build a product. Like there's so many. Do, do you, do you agree that these crash courses are better suited in, in real life and potentially losing money or <laughs> investors money or time versus, uh, in a book somewhere? I mean, can one actually learn anything around entrepreneurship by going to school? I think, Theory is just as important as practice in anything you do. You know, you can, you can spend a hundred hours on YouTube watching surf videos. Yeah. But you're not going to be able to learn how to surf until you get into the freaking waters. Now, it helps you to understand the landscape. It helps you to understand, like, avoid this, you know, don't do stupid things. That, that's where the sort of the book smarts comes in. But at the end of the day, my biggest learnings have been from physical experiences because you're there and then 
if you're analytical about that, you can look back and connect the dots and like, oh, you know, of course I shouldn't have done that. And I don't think you can learn that from, from someone else or reading yourself too. Right. Now you're, so, and so when did you come over to the US? What brought you over here and, and what did you do when you arrived? So the agency was going well and we started getting more and more clients and my ex is like, oh, I want to go to the United States and work in fashion. Because if you're in fashion in Stockholm, you know, Stockholm's a pretty sort of design-centric fashion uh, city, but she wanted to move to New York. She moved here and I started thinking like, well, why don't we set up our shop in New York? Um, spent a few months here and just fell in love with the energy, you know, the sort of the infinite potential. Like you, you walk around Manhattan and you look at these buildings, you know, ever stretching upwards and you, it was such a different environment than, than Stockholm at that point. And I said, let's do it. So we moved here, opened up our design studio here and started really getting into the startup environment. So um, the first sort of besides the client projects, I had a travel app. Uh, which is called a uh, triple agent. And it was basically to help you uncover hidden gems in the city. So more of a, more of a curated trip advisor. Yep. And that was my crash course in like the startup hustle. You know, I used to yep. go to every meetup I could find in the city, eating, you know, dollar slice pizza and uh, just going up and, and pitching. And it was terrible, but that, that's where, you know, cutting your teeth is and pitching to investors, man. So Taris, the reason I just dipped down here is I'm in my, uh, my office here. So this was my, my first uh, entrepreneurial experience called the Vagabond. It was an aggregation of hotels and restaurants yeah. in the country. It's Prince. There I am looking 20 pounds overweight in Charlotte, oh North God. Carolina. That's amazing. And this was in uh, Barnes and Nobles and Borders it, until I realized how expensive it was to print. Mm. And this was kind of before digital. My point though is the whole idea here was how do you make life easier for a business or leisure traveler to mm. aggregate all this information? And of course, today, you know, Zagat, TripAdvisor, all these different platforms. But it's interesting that you you also sort of took a That's dive funny. into the tri- yeah. Never so we the vagabond before. Similar, yeah, we arrived at similar uh, insights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now let let's um, let's shift gears a little bit into what's what's happening today and Tarform. And uh, obviously, I know this story as I got to know you a little bit and as we consider investment. But start from the cocktail napkin. You have such an audacious vision, and I really think for our audience and listeners, as they get to know you and they eventually see Tarforms on the streets at a national level over the next, you know, five, 10 years, hmm. where, where did this begin? I, w- I want people to realize that this, you know, we, we, we're talking to the Elon Musk of EV motorcycles. So this is going to be, uh, this will be pretty hmm. valuable content in the future. Yeah. I think the, the, the first seed sort of, I was never really into, or I've always felt this pull towards hardware. So I spent most of, of my, uh, you know, life and career in the digital sort of software world as, and as, hobby projects i designed some furniture in sweden and one of my friends bought this old suzuki and he came to my home and i'm like man what the hell is this this loud freaking thing you know why, why did you get a motorcycle like i, I was really not into that, that kind of thing and he's like man i love it. just there's something about this you know so i tried it and i'm like what this is this is so much more fun than, than, the, than a car. So I started scouting what the equivalent of Craigslist is in Sweden. I find this Yamaha XS400 from 1982, like a vintage looking bobber. And I buy this bike before even getting a license. And just, you know, the day after I buy it, I 
take it apart and it's a why the hell did you take this thing apart because when i buy shit i don't want to take it apart i want to keep it together hopefully it never breaks and if it does break i'm going to hire somebody to come fix it for me so why the fuck would you take something apart i think that that was sort of the design mindset is like i first wanted to understand what is it and then put my own spin on it okay i'm like i'm not into the seat i'm not into this exhaust this tank and so on so yeah then i just get really interested in, in this machine you know what is it that it signifies so many different things in our culture and so that, that sort of became a slowly rising hobby and then when i moved to to new york i joined the local motorcycle community out in park slope in brooklyn it was a shop filled with like hundreds of motor- that's where i spent most of my weekends so monday to friday digital tech you know uh, pitches and uh, the code and then weekends you know welding grinding oil like those two worlds were like literally oil and water right yeah and at some point i came to like yeah i love tech but also i love this thing and that passion kind of grew more and more and more and i started building custom bikes and people started ordering them so i started shipping them all over the world from tokyo to so you would buy you would get your hands on from some other manufacturer you would you would take it apart and you would sort of put your own your own vision, whether it's a you know a part, a seat, you know some, something, but obviously not the core core, core pro, not the engine, obviously, but yeah. right more more from an aesthetics perspective. Yes, so you just scouted Craigslist for like barn finds upstate, you know, uh, a two thousand dollar frame that's been rusted for thirty years, you know, from a Triumph, and bring it into the shop, and, you know, tear it down, scout vintage parts from eBay, and then put it back together into whatever I thought look good whether it was a is a cafe racer or a scrambler or a bobber or whatever was this hobby or part business at this stage so there came a point where i got a physical order and they're like well we're going to commission you to build a bike and i said oh i'm okay i'm going to get paid for building this that's cool and they wanted a, a motorcycle within 30 days and i've never built you know full-on product custom bike before so i said yes and then i buy a you know an old school triumph and just live at the shop for 30 days. I'm like, I have to complete this. This is my chance. Were you to- dating at the time? Did, were you like leaving? Were, like, was there anyone in your life that you sort of abandoned? No movies, like anything for fun or this was fun? I mean, I, I abandoned pretty much everything. You know, I, I, at that point, I didn't have too many clients because the, the motorcycle thing started taking so much time. And I, I saw this, well, maybe this is my entry into the becoming a professional custom bike builder, which was not at all something i considered a few years ago you know but i just loved sort of the the culture around it and um, so i built this bike finish it in 30 days and they say what the fuck uh, we want another one and then they started ordering more and more bikes so i started you know building them and making money off it and uh, eventually i built about 12 of these custom bikes and at the same time i had also a tech startup uh, that was in the mental health space. And uh, we raised capital, had an office downtown, you know, 10 people. So as I was getting deeper into the tech, I was also getting deeper into this machine world and felt, you this know, pull. this pull. I'm like, well, I have to shift my focus and attention towards something. It doesn't work because it, it's such a demanding thing. I mean, you can't have scattered focus at first. So that company didn't work out for a number of reasons. Co-founder, you know, we ran out of capital and so on. No, I, ne- and I never, I never heard of startups running out of money. That's the first time uh, I heard yeah. that one. Yeah, or or having issues with co-founders. You never know, heard it. Never, never, never heard of that either. Yeah. 
Um, so at that point, you know, I'm like, well, the tech doesn't really do anything for me anymore because I, I, the way we use technology is not really applied towards anything that has an impact on a bigger scale. And at the same time, I didn't want to be a custom bike builder because building one bike at a time, yeah, it's cool as an art project, you know. And then I'm like, well, what can I combine this? And I can buy, can I combine it that has an exponential impact in all of these areas that I care about technology, uh, hardware design and machines, you know, and Taurus, 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 pause there for one second. I'm going to just, I'm going to go off course for a second and come back, but just touched on it. We've never talked about it on this show. What do you think the benefits or downsides of independent founder versus co-founder? Most companies have two, some have three, I think four is too many. We, you know, but two, two is kind of the average, maybe it's 98% of what we see at C2V. But what, what do you, yeah. how do you think about the, the benefits of that co-founder experience? Not so much from a Tarform perspective, but just mm. on the macro. You know what? I don't know. I've had uh, some, I've had five startups and only one where I didn't have a co-founder and obviously by every failure you learn something but i think being crystal clear in expectations from the moment you're like this is what i'm thinking whether it's a shared idea and you invite someone or you both say let's do something now how do you divide roles and responsibilities what i think most people do is like oh cool you know we work together we're great the pals let's start a company but you need to build a team that your co-founder should do things that you are not doing or you're not good at. You should complement each other. And then there's so much relationship management. The cliche is like it's a marriage and it is a marriage. And if you're not communicating with each other, sooner or later, it's going to come to a point where someone is feeling, well, I'm doing more work. You're not doing it. Or why are you doing this? You shouldn't be doing that. Follow my vision or whatnot. whatnot. So I think, of course, a co-founder helps you as long as you know where you guys are you sitting in the same boat and rowing yeah. in the same direction? I think uh, I think otherwise it, I, you just go around. No, I think that makes sense. I think from my vantage, it's so important to have highly complementary skill sets and not necessarily have to do the same thing. But that's hard to come by. Okay, yeah. now back to assembling bikes. Did you look at kind of the macro environment, Harley or anything else out there, and say, "God, how am I gonna how am I gonna produce motors? You know, how am I gonna build motorcycles? Like that ship has sailed, right? Like there's bikes yeah. on the road and." Did that ever cross your mind? And on the sustainability yeah. side, I'm curious. So there's two parts here. I feel like on the environment, global warming, these things really, maybe in the last 18 months, have kind of hit scale, right? Mm. But you're talking about sort of combining this passion years before. So I want to mm. understand a little bit about a, a little bit about that. Yeah, it, it was sort of multiple like spotlights that you know. First, you have an idea. And it's this embryo that's kind of diffuse. You're just feeling a pull towards it. You can't even articulate it because it's this, it's just a calling, right? And for me, it was this, why hasn't anyone done this before? It, it came at a certain moment when I was working on my bike and it was leaking all over my shop. And every <laughs> night I came home with dirty hands, smelly clothes, just being surrounded by chemicals, which I don't think, you know, a lot of people are necessarily if you're not working with these old school machines. And just this question, like, how, why hasn't this thing improved for a hundred years? Like looking at all the amazing 
stuff that technology is putting out. Why are we still riding this thing with explosions between our legs and working with these toxic materials? So, Think to the terrorists that maybe no one's doing it because it's too hard? Did that ever cross your mind? No, because that, that was the ignorance part. I didn't even know how hard it was. The idea was simple. Like, why hasn't anyone built the, you know, a vintage-looking electric motorbike? And part of that need was also selfish need. I'm like, oh, well, I would want to ride a, a bike like this that's clean and that looks like a, like a timeless mid-century bike. So that was kind of the origin. And then the evolution of that was, well, who else is doing this? And kind of started mapping out the landscape, you know, and found two, three companies. I looked at them, I'm like, now, now, maybe they built a product, but they're not, they haven't built a brand or a lifestyle. And sort of being in the biker community, I also saw that there's different mindsets around, around sort of the biker culture and a reason why people typically in tech or the creative industries are not getting into that space because it is very sort of, heavily you know macho dominated it's like dudes with like yeah terribly dressed guys probably a little overweight i can picture kind of a cigarette behind the ear maybe you know maybe a little of this sound it's super loud i always find it obnoxious when people rev up super loud when like you're just trying to have a fucking cup of coffee and like that part just drives me nuts i don't understand where that comes from like you already have the bike the bike is like your that tells me something about you as far as your independence and Maybe you have less sort of fear factors, whatever. You don't need to rev that thing up when you're driving by some in a crowded street. What is that? 100%. You got it. And the culture is just as strong as the actual product. So, you know, I kind of felt, okay, the design of the bike uh, would reflect the culture that we want to create. And how do we create the brand and the message around this? So that sort of became the outer ring, you know, not just building an electric motorcycle, but building a community and a lifestyle around it. And how do we look into the future and agree as a society that, you know, should we keep building products the way they have been built using outdated processes, toxic materials, or is there going to come a point in five, 10 years where most people are going to say, you know what, this is, this is not good. Uh, you know, our oceans full of plastic. And I came to that realization mainly by being, working in these toxic materials. And realizing, uh, th- this is not good. You know, is this really how we build stuff today? Why isn't more people talking about this? It's like the trifecta, right? It's solving for doing what's right, making something beautiful, disrupting, which I know is an overused term into a, an industry that's been around for a long time and perhaps building a business around it. So, Taurus, where is Tarform today? You're in the Brooklyn Navy Yards. Shout out to to your Brooklyn people. I, I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about that space because it feels so conducive and, and relevant to, to who you are and what the business is. But where are we today? So from that sort of inception of like, oh, there's got to be something better, right? Five years later with many mountain peaks and many nights driving in fog and like, what the hell is this? Why am I even doing this? So now literally in the in the space next to me, we're building the first production bike that's going to uh, get New York plates. And then uh, I'm going to give the keys to a customer in, in a couple of weeks. So it's been, it's been, sometimes it feels like a second, but also half of, of a decade of just going with a machete through a jungle that no one's ever walked through. I know I asked you about your hard points when you were early in your career with your agency or whatnot. 
what were the darkest moments in building Tarform? And if you were going to, you know, what did quitting look like and why did you continue? You mentioned the trifecta before. Maybe, maybe there's the quad, what is it? Quadfecta, is that even the name? The fourth thing was what project would I be able to dedicate my time towards that I know my energy would not run out? And that Tarform was the thing because it, it encapsulates so many things, not just the design, but the, the brand mission, the purpose of it. So even because I knew the hard times would come and, uh, you know, I, I asked myself the question, what would be required of me to not give up during the hardest times? And the answer was, well, working on something that I believe has a massive impact, not economical impact or from a profitability impact, but an impact that truly can inspire people to make better decisions around the way, you know, not only the way we move, but the way we consume, the way we interact with products. And also at the same time, bring an experience because riding a motorbike is, you know, it's, it's, it's the most powerful experience many people can have. But uh, those dark moments, uh, I'd say the worst was probably, it's not like it's easy to run a hardware startup, but what was it? March, 2020, we were assembling our first pre-production prototype. And then this thing comes out, oh, you have to send people home because there's this virus. And we had about two months runway. Our milestone was finish the bike, launch it, hit a certain milestone pre-orders, and then get the next check from our investors. And suddenly I'm sitting in this garage, still in the Brooklyn Navy Yard with parts, <laughs> you know, everywhere and nobody there to build it. And, you know, the burn is running out. And that was, that was the moment. That's like, nuts. Okay. So, no. Maybe I spent, maybe I spent a couple of hours uh, thinking, well, there's absolutely no way out of this. But then I spent the majority of the time thinking there's got to be a way. And what is that way? And <laughs> just flipping every... So eventually I got most of our investors and I told them, like, hey guys, we just need, we need to raise emergency just to buy us as a couple of months runway. I don't know when the world is going to resume, when people are going to come out of this quarantine. But there's one thing I know is that we can finish this bike. And I need one guy in the shop <laughs> to finish this bike. So I convinced one of our mechanical engineers to basically quarantine with me at the shop for three months. And incredible. I didn't know that. Build the bike. I didn't yeah, know, I didn't know you, had, you had this one engineer to... Uh, that, would have been, that feels like a long time hanging out with you, man. Like I like you, but that <laughs> seems like a super long time. Taurus, for founders and entrepreneurs that could be listening to this show, what would be your advice during those really dark days? What to do when you're seeing a brick wall and you're too tired and adversity? What, what would be your advice to them? Yeah, man, I think having a, a, a good support system, having people around you that are there to truly believe in what you're doing and give you that, that energy. But it has to come hand in hand with your belief in yourself. So 90% is this fundamental thing that unless it defies the laws of physics, there has to be a way. Moments when I feel around, like, how the hell do you build a vehicle with no resources? And I don't have a background in mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, but 
every time I look across there and I see this bridge, you know, I'm like, well, that seems like a big project. Somebody build it. Oh, so interesting. That must be possible. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I think constantly shifting perspectives and realizing that's, that's that your good. challenge. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, a, a, that's actually really interesting. Maybe perhaps look at something that is bigger than what you're attempting to build and put it in sort of further context. So yes. some highlights, the, the motorcycles getting on the road. I encourage everyone to check out how beautiful this machine is at tarform.com. Recently had some headlines in press. There's a lot of people getting excited about this product. Lewis Hamilton is, is one of those people. Talk to our audience a little bit about, I feel like the way that Tarform has built its audience very organically. You know, we keep hearing this sort of notion of hacks and street smarts and grassroots, but you actually have done it. You know, you've you traveled all over the country, you've been to deserts, you've been to Miami, the bike goes everywhere with you, the logistics around that, people seeing on the street, a brick by brick sort of model. So, you know, for those that have a consumer in mind, which obviously there's a component of this that, you know, it is hardware, it is software, it is a machine. You have the whole supply chain as another kind of challenge as far as, you know, building the business. But learnings and insights in regards to the consumer adoption, finding the right people and what you've learned and uncovered, what are your aha moments? And, and also for the Instagram handle, is it just uh, at Tarform? Yes, at Tarform. At Tarform, T-A-R-F-O-R-M. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you could address sort of the consumer grassroots, what you've been going through, because I find it pretty pretty hard and makes me exhausted just watching it. Yeah, but. I think part of those insights also came from, from my design agency where we consulted with a lot of startups. And what we did is uh, part of the work began with, how do we tell the story of this project? So if you, you know, usually it was a napkin sketch startup that came to us and said, we want to build this, we want to build this, uh, this app and so on. And my job was to go in and find what is the interesting part behind this besides the product? How do you find the audience and how do you create the story around? So I've always been fascinated by film and writing. So how do you, how do you convey a story in an emotional way? And realize that most of the times when when you tell a story where you build a brand, that story is not really authentic. It's created by, by someone who's disassociated from the project and the, the intention behind the project. And uh, typically it's a company goes to a branding agency and says, we need help identifying our vision and the mission. And then the branding company comes and tells them, this is what you, who you are and this is what you should believe in. And the company says, cool, thank you. And then they go and try to implement it in the organization, but they, they don't integrate it. They, don't, they really don't know what their sense of purpose and their mission is. So I think the most powerful thing, whether you're building a lifestyle brand or a product, is to first completely understand what is your purpose as a company. And it, it's not generating profit. I don't think companies whose purpose is generating profit are going to be much uh, relevant much longer, especially with today's consumer demand, where People want to use products that is a reflection of their values. So say that again. Please say that again. People want to use products that is a reflection of your values. Of their values. Thank you. So I would say begin there is like, what do you stand for? What is the culture you're creating inside and outside? And if that is in alignment with your product, the community 
is going to happen pretty organically because you know your vibe is going to attract your tribe and naturally people will gravitate but obviously there's a hustle to it is to to find yourself in the right environment to place yourself in surroundings where you know that people are going to resonate with your message but it starts with what are you trying to say and who are you saying this to vibe will attract your tribe man you're coming in hot at the at the tail end of this show taris what can you tell us about lewis hamilton and his participation in the wall street journal magazine feature recently talked a little bit about that partnership a little bit about lewis and a few more questions uh yeah you can go and google lewis hamilton wall street journal but uh, we were fortunate to have him our first Street Legal Founder Edition bike, which is quite a surreal moment. Obviously, you know, five years ago, you're just sketching. And then five years later, you have the world's biggest athlete sitting on, on your machine doing burnouts. And uh, I guess it just, it, it, it's just, it's a confirmation. Bur- burnouts for the audience is when you like rev the tire. It's not like smoking yes. a joint, right? No, no, exactly. Although okay, okay, okay. the effects seem to be similar. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's amazing. And, uh, you know, obviously... Obviously, it, it gives you this sense of confidence that you're doing something right. Taris, such an impressive story. Can't wait to kind of see what's next for you and the team. I was kind of thinking about this conversation and your superpowers, and there's a lot. I mean, one of the things that came to mind, but I would love to get your opinion too, is I think there's, also, there, there's this certain value of being naive that I think maybe you you have. I haven't seen that before with any of our guests or shows, but being sort of unaware of the task at hand. I don't know if that's a superpower. Maybe it is, but I feel like being somewhat blinded into into what to to the walking into the abyss could be a superpower, right? Because a lot of people would have turned out. Clearly, uh, you're very, very mission-driven. And I think a lot of companies are full of shit when they say that they're mission-driven and they have this overarching. I think it's not authentic. I think a superpower of yours certainly is your high level of authenticity that you can feel and touch with the brand when you meet you, when you touch the bike, when you come visit. All these things click. People aren't dumb. So in a lot of cases, you hear a narrative and you're like, "Eh, that doesn't really add up. But certainly understanding the value of a community and sort of this, you know, your vibe will attract your tribe, I think is a superpower of yours. So before we kind of Thanks, conclude or wrap up, what would you, how would you kind of classify based on some of these observations in regards to how you've gotten to where you are today as far as a superpower goes? Mm. No, thank you for saying that. And uh, it's good to, I guess, see and hear that the, what you're putting out is pinging in the right way that the, you're intending it to do. I don't know my observations, but uh, yeah, the, the na- na- naiveness or naivete, what's the plural of it? Na- na- yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it has to be, how else would you do something that never existed before, right? If you yeah. only look at things that's in front of you, that, that's based on knowledge, that's based on things we know. But imagination is, is beyond knowledge. So if you find that balance between imagination, but also having the confidence that you have the knowledge, then maybe you're living in sort of two steps in front. Because jumping out of the airplane without the parachute is a stupid thing, right? But jumping out of the airplane with a parachute, not assembled, (laughs) that's a different thing. Well, I'm going to go with 
naivety, naive. I think there's an element of ignorance is, is, is bliss as mm. far as uh, pertaining to your entrepreneurial journey. Cause that is, True. it's uh that's not common, but I think there's a lot of breadcrumbs here that tell us that it's a huge part of your uh, early success. Closing out, uh, Taurus, greatly appreciate you joining the Superpowers podcast show, enlightening us on your journey, where you're going, how you see the world. I think our our audience will get a lot of interesting nuggets as it pertains to your uh, who you are, and 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 hopefully other founders can can learn from this, which is obviously our the intent of the show. So Thanks thank so you much, so Chris. Thanks so much for joining. And uh, my pleasure. And thank you for believing in us. You know, that, that, that goes back to the having people around you that, that truly support the mission. Of course. And to close out, give, your, uh, give some plugs for one more time. Websites, Instagrams, where do you want people to check things out before we wrap up? Yeah, just Google Tarform. We've got tarform.com, Instagram at Tarform. And those, you'll see bikes on the road soon. Awesome. It rolls by you. That doesn't sound like a motorbike. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, we didn't talk about that the first time we, uh, we, I met and that it's running. And for our audience, it's so quiet that if you're sitting on it or you're standing right next to it, you wouldn't even know the, uh, that it's running, which is pretty, pretty impressive. It's sweet. I'm heavily biased, but we kicked off with that. Thank you, Tars, for joining the show. Have a great day. All right, bud. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode, everyone. New episodes of the Superpowers podcast are released twice a month. So please subscribe and follow us on our website to get notified on future shows. Superpowers, what's yours? This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.